0: This is the Daily Dispatch Podcast with your business correspondent, Ted
1: Keenan. Today, Dispatch Live is talking to Jason Jordan. Jason is the founder of DFIR Labs, and he is, not by his own words, but by experts in the field, the foremost forensic analyst in South Africa. Before we start assisting people who are getting ripped off left, right and centre, You've just come back from Saudi. What were you doing in Saudi? Oh, that's correct, Ted. Um, yeah,
0: I was. I was actually doing work for the Saudi Arabia government. Um, they've got quite an exciting initiative to improve their general cybersecurity posture of the entire country, and they've invested millions and millions and millions of US dollars into training um, representatives and officials from various government departments. So. I was actually teaching a, a course on Windows Forensic Analysis to, to I had 53 people um, from different government agencies in my class, um, basically equipping them with the skills to do forensic analysis on cases that affect their agencies or you know the
1: constituents that they serve in Saudi Arabia. What, what's the level of person uh, that you were training over there? And by that, I mean, what sort of uh, academic background would they have needed to be sitting in front of you? Oh wow! It was it was
0: actually quite um, interesting. I mean, just about everybody in the class at least had a, a bachelor's degree in computer science or some kind of IT-related field. Um, several of them actually had master's degrees in computer science, um, and a few of them were actually busy, actively busy with PhD studies in computer science as well. So, very, very, very educated cohort of
1: students. And you're busy with your own PhD, yep, and that's, that's going to be added on to a Seven or eight <laughs> qualifications.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a perpetual nerd. Um, uh, I always said my son when he was born, I said, you know, my boy, unfortunately you're cursed. You know, between your mother, who's a medical scientist, and your
1: father, who's a computer scientist, you, <laughs> you're doomed to a life of study and academia. So, Jason, if at the end of this we can have told gullible people a few little tricks of trying to not get gullible. There's a lovely saying which we discussed earlier before we came on air. If it sounds too good to be true, it will be. That's correct. But that hammers the greedy as well. So gullible, greedy, the gag sector. You can't do anything about greed, or can you? Well, if if you think about it, I mean, I
0: suppose at some level all of us desire to have more than what we have. You know, so... So, you know, over the years that I've been doing investigations, you know, you often, you know, when we think about crime in general, maybe sort of to digress a little bit, we often think of crime as a poverty problem. You know, people commit crime because they're poor or unemployment is high or things along those lines. Um, But the reality is, is a lot of people that actually do commit crimes, especially white-collar crimes, are people of means. You know, these are not generally poor people that are committing these crimes. These are generally people that actually can sustain themselves. Um, so unfortunately what happens is that when it comes to a greed point of view, you've, you've almost got like two levels. You've got that, um, that survival existential threat where I need money so I can put food on the table, and I wouldn't necessarily s- attribute that to greed, but we all have that. We have this primal desire to, to survive. But then once you've got to that point where you actually do, you can survive and you have the means to survive, everybody then gets to a point where they start to desire more. And it, it is, I think it is a fundamental part of human nature. We, we're always looking for more. We'd, we'd all like to have more. Um, and I think that's largely just because of the society mm-hmm. we've lived in. You know, We've, we've created the society where the desire for more, for material wealth, for consumption, for
1: consumerism, has become pretty much the norm. And it's not necessarily just stupid people. Yeah, that's correct. The the recent case with um Christovisa and Steinhoff where he dropped I think it was about sixty five billion. Yeah. He's trying to get the money back, but I don't think he is. You mentioned a, a case earlier where business people have been conned. It's not necessarily greed, in fact it's definitely not greed, and it's not really stupidity either. No, it's but not. perhaps trusting. Yeah. You would. We were speaking about the case of a chap that paid eighty four thousand. Mm. How does that work, or how does that happen?
0: So, so one of these things we're talking about is, is an example of business email compromise. It's it's effectively a type of crime where two parties are engaged in a commercial transaction, and because email is the sort of de facto form of business communication these days. Um, the one party will generally provide banking details to the other party so payment could be affected by EFT. The problem is with this type of fraud is we have massive organized crime groups that, that are constantly hacking into people's email accounts and taking control of their mail services to, to identify these transactions. But because they've ultimately controlled the email communication channel, they can insert themselves in the transaction and pretend that they are the party that you're transacting with. So, so for example, if you and I enter into a commercial engagement, I'm providing a service to you, and uh, you know you send me the instruction over email. I'm giving you reports and feedbacks over emails. It's a very standard business activity. And at some point, you're happy with the work that I've done. You say, "Can you now please send me, you know, my invoice?" And I send you the invoice via email. Um, but the problem is the email that I send you with the invoice gets intercepted by the criminals who then insert themselves in the transaction and send the email as if it was coming from me. So so my email address is jason at dfirlabs.com, shameless plugin. Um, but I then send you an email from jason at df1rlabs.com. You see the email when it comes in and it looks like com because you don't expect anything different. I'm talking about the same transactions we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. And you, you see the, the invoice and you make payment on that invoice. You've trusted that transaction because I, as the attacker, insert myself in such a way that that you still believe that you're talking to me. You're not. You're no longer talking to me. You're now talking to somebody else.
1: And the stationery looks exactly the same. Stationery looks
0: exactly the same. These guys have online sites that they, you know, they have they have um, templates for all of the major South African banks. Um, the the documentation they create is really really effective. I mean, we are we are
1: talking about multinational organized crime groups. When you say multinational, are we talking these guys have an office here and an office there and an office are they like big corporations? No, we, we
0: are effectively talking about criminal organizations that function pretty much like big corporations. They have departments, they have teams, they have tiered levels of management, they have operations in different parts of the world. They have individual teams that are that are responsible for moving the money around the financial system, for creating fictitious bank accounts, for corrupting the holders of existing bank accounts. I mean, just to get a classic example, I mean, a lot of people get these emails, um, uh, do you want to work from home, you know, do you, do you want to uh, earn, you know, easy money doing admin work? Effectively, those people, what they're doing is they are receiving payments into their bank accounts, you know taking a percentage and passing it on or drawing the money out of the bank account, effectively they've all become money launderers. That, and that's what these organized crime groups need to do to actually move the money out of the system because so long as the money's still in the financial system, it's easier to track. But the moment it's moved out of the system as cash or as assets, it becomes a lot more difficult for us you know, from an investigation point of view to track those assets down and potentially recover them.
1: How fast does it take for these guys to move the money around to the extent that it's untraceable? Within twenty four hours. Literally within twenty four hours. So you don't want to be at the receiving end of these scams? Yeah, you
0: know, I mean I mean one of the things that has frustrated me over the years is that there are mechanisms in place within the financial system to actually hinder these kind of criminal activities. But unfortunately, I haven't seen the banks having a very strong desire to implement them. And, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. If you have a credit card, so so you're using a credit card, you're effectively using the bank's money when you, you use it. If you go and do a strange transaction somewhere that's out of character, so you, know, you normally transact here in East London and suddenly you're in Cape Town and you're at the V&A waterfront. So you, you do the transaction... The bank gives you a phone call, you know, um, Ted, we've noticed that you've just done a transaction at Cape Town, at the v at the iStore, is this you? So, so the banks have the facility to identify suspicious transactions on an account. So let me flip it the other way. You have a bank account. That account has got a very low balance, and the traditional account history of that account has always been a very low balance. And all of a sudden, that account receives 150,000 Rand paid into it through an EFT. Surely that's a suspicious transaction. Why can't the bank flag those transactions and say, we need to just double check this transaction to check the legitimacy uh. of the transaction? Now, I've spoken to various banks around the country about this, and they've been very lukewarm about it. Now... My view is that there's actually a legal precedent if you look at the Financial Intelligence Centre Act, the Financial Intelligence Sector Act obligates reportable institutions, which includes banks, to report on suspicious transactions. We refer to them as STRs or suspicious transaction reports. So my question is every one of those transactions should be an STR, should be reported and should be investigated. And the money is
1: still held within in the bank.
0: Yeah, so so what the banks could do is they could they could the money comes to the bank, they automatically detect through through their their analytics platforms that this is irregular activity on the account. They could put a hold on that money for twenty-four or forty-eight hours so it could be investigated. Um, but they don't do that. And unfortunately what happens that money hits the account and literally almost at the same time the the money mules, the people have been recruited to control the account are either withdrawing the money out of the account. They're transferring it out via Western Union or MoneyGram, um, or they are doing something else with that money, You know, buying crypto assets and things along those lines, and the money moves out of the system. So for me, I think that's a critical shortcoming when it comes to, to combating this type of crime, and I think the financial institutions personally could do a lot more to actually contribute to the fight against it.
1: Take me for, as an example. I am not tech-savvy, I would never know if somebody was putting a, a false account to me. But let's say I pay that account. Yeah. That money's gone.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean fundamentally that money's been moved out of the country. Um, the chance of you getting that money back is negligible.
1: If I don't get my money back, I try and get it back. Are there any other things that might happen to me?
0: Well, there's a couple of things just purely from a, from a legal perspective. So let's look at two, two avenues. The one is you've been the victim of a crime. Somebody's committed a fraud against you. So if you look at the common law definition of fraud, it's the unlawful and intentional misrepresentation that causes prejudice or potential prejudice. So if somebody's made a misrepresentation to you, you've paid over as a result of that prejudice, you've now been a victim. But the problem is even though you've been a victim and you've paid the criminals – you're still obligated to pay the person who provided you the service or sold you the property in the first place. So, you know, using the scenario that I provided a service for you, I, as the service provider, provided a legitimate service to you. I still haven't been paid for it. And and we're involved in a couple of civil lawsuits at the moment where, where the forensics has actually revolved around that, where people are saying, you still owe me the money. I'm like, I'm sorry that you're a victim, but... You still owe me the money. The fact that, that you've been a victim of a crime doesn't take away your obligation to pay me for the service or the product or whatever else I
1: provided. That's at the the higher level because it happens to business people. Mm. In fact, there was a lot of news a while ago about uh, estate agents. Mm. What was the outcome of that story? It's, it's still
0: constantly ongoing. Um, I mean, we actually... Uh, earlier on this year, I was involved in quite a major lawsuit, a high court case where um, some very high-end uh, firms, law firms were actually involved in this around property transactions. And um, and the one the one party basically turned around and said, we hold the other party was negligent in their security and this allowed the fraud to happen. So we're still waiting for judgment from that, from the, the Joburg High Court. but But I think because of the parties that are involved... And technically, the matter, I suppose, is still sub judice, But um, due to the parties involved, we actually expect whatever the ruling is it will be appealed. It will probably go all the way to the, appeal- the appellate division. And um, that might actually set precedent case law on what corporations are required to do for security in their organizations. But it's, it's, a, it's a constant, ongoing problem.
1: Would a solution be as simple as a person gets an invoice... He knows that he has to pay that invoice. If it's a large amount, should he almost be obligated to phone the company and say, "I just want to double check that this came from you guys"? Yeah,
0: I mean, it, it's 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 a it's a simple step that organisations can do, and, and and we've recommended this for just about everybody that we've worked with that's been the victim of this kind of crime. Building your business processes. If you receive a bank statement from – I say bank statement, but proof of bank account from somebody and you go to make payment on that, phone that person and confirm verbally that it is legit, confirm the account numbers, confirm the details, and don't phone the numbers on the invoice either. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um because I we've seen attackers actually change, for example, the, the mobile numbers <laughs> on the invoices. So people have like phoned the number and, and they speak to the criminal and says, Yes, yes, no, this is the legitimate bank account detail. Um actually phone the, the the number that you have on record. Um you know it's it's kind of strange, but in this world of high-tech business that we and everything is done at the speed of light and you know, emails, everything is so quick and easy. We've lost that old-school human interaction where we just talk to people, and, you know, hey, how are you, Ted? How are you doing? You know, sort of follow-up, you know, those kind of things. We, we're too trusting in the email system. Um, so simple, simple, simple thing. Just phone the person up. Hey, I've received your proof of bank account details. I just want to confirm with you the account number. Um, and that that is a very, very, very easy
1: thing to do. What sort of advice would you give to people many of them in an old age home that get seriously conned mm. by a person almost face to face because they're going out to help them yeah. and do this and do that they'll go and buy their groceries but then they just will need their credit card mm. because they'll do it for them again yeah so three or four visits and the guy can walk away by clearing that poor exactly. person's account what advice have, do you give to those people one of the things about people is people are inherently
0: trusting. Uh, they, you know, I know, I know we've talked about people being cynical, but the reality is, is as social beings, um, we do have a need for community. We do have a need to trust people for our own survival. And unfortunately, as you as you get older in life, there is more and more of a need for you to be reliant on other people to assist you. So when when somebody offers to assist. Um, it becomes very easy for somebody in that position to say, you know, thanks so much, you know, I'm really grateful for you helping me out, and not realizing that the person wanting to assist actually has some kind of malicious intention behind that that transaction. Um, And and the problem is, as well, is we get so used to, to, you know, when... When um, I'm old, for example, I can't look after myself. I've got to rely and trust in everybody. That's the narrative that gets kind of fed to us, also by society as well, um, that we start to believe it. And and I think you know the the best advice there is is always maintain a critical mindset. Always ask, yeah. you know, why is somebody actually wanting to help me? What's the reason for this? Always a motivation for for everything. Um, and uh, you know and to be honest, never trust anybody with your banking account details, or your credit card numbers, or anything along those lines. Um, you know, and, and I can talk from practical experience. My my late grandfather, when when he was still alive, um, the the lady that he was um, involved with at the time, they tried to scam her. And if it wasn't for the fact that my grandfather knew what it did, and obviously I shared a lot with him. This is still when I was in the police, and he's like. Um, you know, like can I just phone my son quickly? He's a you know, he's a detective sergeant with the local fraud squad. And these guys they they bug it off like you know, like a bat out of hell. But it, it's that something those predators are out there and, and they you know they do target elderly people. I mean there's there's whole areas of fraud revolving around the abuse of the older, you know, the elderly. Um so it's a huge problem.
1: So that comes back to if it sounds too good to be yeah. true. Yeah, it if it sounds is. to to be true, it probably is. The people that are doing this are not at the small level necessarily bright, but these corporations are employing top-class people. Mm.
0: So, I mean, obviously, at, at different levels of the fraud ecosystem, if I can put it that way, you know, you, you have your your low-level predators, if I can refer to them that way, you know, the the individual scammers, the grifters, the people that are, you know, the, the, literally the bottom feeders. Yeah. Um, but as you go up that scale, things become way more sophisticated. So if we look at, you know, we we're talking about business email compromise type frauds. When we talk about the organized crime groups behind that, these are really sophisticated groups. I mean, these are guys that will, you know, they will build their own hacker teams. You know, they'll they'll have top technical talent working for them. You know, they have like expert financial people working for them to help them with laundering the money and, and moving the assets around the financial system. So, so, so like I said, you, could, you can always think of the low level as, you know, the guy that's going to mug you in the street. He doesn't have to be very bright, but then you move all the way through to those top-tier echelon sort of um, elite organized crime criminals, if I can put it that way, that, that manage things and run things better than some corporations. Um, and for them, it's all about profit. It's all about money
1: and power. The banks don't like to publish when they've been taken for a ride. Yeah. How many rides are going on? Have you any idea about the magnitude of fraud? So So he has, he has the problem when it comes
0: to official statistics on fraud or, or any type of, of crime these days. And there's a, there's a well-known phenomenon in criminology. Which talks about the reported levels of crime, and then the actual levels of crime. So, so there's a lot of crime that goes unreported. Um, so, if you look at something like fraud, if you've if you've been scammed of 50 rand or 100 rand, what's the chance that you're actually going to go report that to the police? Probably very little. You know, I've seen people that have been scammed of 100,000, 200,000 that just turn around and say, you know what, the police are not going to do anything about it. We're not going to waste our time to report it. We'll just accept yeah. the loss. So so the reality is is that the, the total amount of fraud, or those kind of white-collar crimes that are out there, we don't actually have really good statistics. And unfortunately, and, and this is maybe a bit of a controversial thing to say, um, there is a lack of... Um, I want to say, maybe willingness or capacity within the authorities at the moment to to investigate these type of crimes. And I have had cases where people have gone to the police station to report crimes, and the crimes haven't been reported, the statements haven't been accepted, so the crime stats also get fudged around a little bit there as well. But but antidotally, you know, if you look at um, what we see just from our own observations, I mean, the levels of fraud are astronomical. I mean, I mean, the, the amount of money that is lost is insane. But if you ask me to give you an official statistic and say this is the exact amount, I'm not going to put my head on a chopping block and say, you know, it's $100 billion or, or, you know, anything along those lines. But I think whatever value I put down, it's probably very, very conservative to what the actual value actually is um, out there at the moment.
1: Is there an incentive for bright young people to get into this, inverted commas, business? because the chances of being caught are not that high. And if you wouldn't mind explaining to us.
0: The the reality is is that there's a couple of models when we talk about managing crime. And uh, uh, it's basically a risk versus reward thing. So for most criminals, they acknowledge that what they're doing is unlawful, and they weigh up the risk versus reward. Obviously the risk is, I'm gonna go to prison, Versus the reward that they get from their activities. So if you think about it, if there's a low risk of going to prison, it's a very attractive prospect. So, so a lot of people get involved in these type of organized crime groups because, firstly, it's, it's good money. Um, I'm certainly not advocating for it, but it, it it's good money, and so the we won't be writing horror.
1: about it in our careers page. <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, I, I, prob- I probably it always reminds me of that one cartoon where the little boy goes to his father and says, uh, "You know, I want I want, it, I, want a, I want a life in organised crime," and his his father says to him, "So do you want be in public sector or private sector?" <laughs> um, having worked in an anti corruption unit for a long time, that that story has a lot of. Um, <laughs> personal uh, relevance to me but but the reality is is that these guys it is a low risk um, type of crime now there's it's a low risk for a number of reasons oftentimes these people are in other countries so the jurisdictional issues become problematic um, i track the criminals to russia for example russia is not going to extradite those people to south africa it's, it's just a, it's just how it is um, so, so finding the party who who actually benefited or committed the crime um, is is not always possible. So the risk is low, but you can increase the risk of the crime if you don't focus on on individuals, but you focus on the crime as a whole. So in this instance. Um, uh, so some of the work that I did when I was still working in law enforcement was around uh, financial investigations, specifically with the aim of of asset forfeiture and asset seizure. So, so let's use a practical example. Um, you and I've been in this transaction. You've been the victim to you know the fraud. You've lost say a hundred thousand rand. That hundred thousand rand that you paid got paid into a bank account that's controlled by somebody, and if that somebody's a real person. Um, that person may have assets. They've been instrumental in a crime. I want to go after that money mule. Maybe he's got a, a car. Maybe he's got a bicycle. I really don't care what assets he's got. But the law makes provision for us to seize those assets and forfeit them as proceeds of, of or not as proceeds, but as um, recompensa- or compensation for the losses that you'd effectively suffered. So, so with these type of crimes, if we actually start targeting the people that we can target... We might also reduce um, the impact on the victims, but also improve or increase the risk to the attackers because we're actually targeting the supply chain of the of the crime itself rather than the individual criminals and you start to then disrupt the crime rather than well I'm going I'm to try and arrest that guy in Russia or well, maybe I can't arrest that guy in Russia, but I can arrest the money wheel in South Africa and I can seize all of his assets
1: that brings me back to my last question, which will be, you're an East London-based company, and you were saying that you want to focus on East London. What can you do for the East London business community?
0: So one of the things that, you know, I'm, I'm an East London boy. I would love to say I was born and bred in East London, but I spent most of, my, most of my life in East London, and you know, some of my core team members are also born and bred East Londoners. And we have a very soft spot for east london i mean the the worst thing is is I do so much of my work everywhere else in the world, but in east London. I'm
1: going to interrupt you. Just give me a quick rundown of the continents that you've worked on
0: so so uh if I just look at continents so it'd be africa um north america uh europe asia australia so. I mean, I haven't, I haven't done uh, a well. I haven't done Russia, those areas because that's a bit of a problematic area to go work in for me, in um, South America. But pretty much, you know, everywhere I, I've done, pretty much everywhere.
1: So, come back to what are you going to do for East London?
0: So, so one of the things that, that you know that we found just over the years is that you don't want to call us in to do an investigation because that means something bad has already happened. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to sensitize the business community in East London and, and the greater sort of Bordecai region, really, um, on little things that they could do in their organizations to improve their overall cybersecurity. Because if, if you could just make it a bit more difficult for the bad guys, if you just make it a bit harder for the bad guys and not make it so easy for them, we could start protecting our organizations. Um, now, if I come back to the business email compromises, for example... Most of the most of the companies that fall victims, or even the individuals that fall victims, they they themselves have allowed the attackers to do what they do. You know, they've they've received a phishing email from you know from the criminals saying, uh, "Hey, you know, we're from you know Microsoft. We we just want to check your security account." Or here's Microsoft. You've got to log into your account, and they're stealing your username and password to your email account, and that's all they need to do. So it's 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 that awareness, it's that sensitivity, it's it's just advocating for a for a better awareness of cybersecurity. And and I, I always look at it this way: those of us that live in East London, there's we know that there's certain bad areas of town. You know, there's certain places you don't go because you know if you go there at a certain place at a certain time, you're probably going to get mugged or or something bad is going to happen. We have that awareness in the physical world. We don't have that awareness in the cyber world. And and that's what we'd like to try and do in East London is to, to sort of sensitize the general business community about what they can do. But also that one step further is also do that just for general citizens living in South you know, living in East London in South Africa. You know, what can we do as individuals to actually improve our own cybersecurity? You know, just we're never going to stop all the cybercrime. I mean, I'm not naive enough to believe that anything that we do is going to you know, magically stop all cybercrime, but we can certainly make it a lot more difficult for the bad guys.
1: It's like having quite a dangerous dog in your backyard. The baddies will go to the backyard exactly. that hasn't got the dangerous dog. E- exactly. Jason, as always, it's been great fun talking to you, awesome. and Thanks, I hope Ted. the message that you give will resonate with our Perfect. listeners. Yeah, Thank, thank you. you. Thanks very much, Ted. It's a pleasure. Thanks.